Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? God, we thank you that our sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And as Paul tells us in Colossians, that it is our, our sin with all its legal demands have been nailed to the cross, to the open shame, not of us who did the sin, but of Satan who would try to accuse us. And we stand justified before you. And Lord, that is a miracle that we do not want to downplay. And we do not want to miss, and we do not want to understate. So Lord, we say thank you. Thank you that you gave your only son as such a great savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you drive through South Dakota, for those of you who have been fortunate enough to do so, you will find everywhere you look signs for the most unavoidable and most unlikely bizarre tourist trap, at least in my estimation. Signs for this place, in fact, can be found in other states and other countries telling you that you are 4,573 miles away from yeah, you know, you know, it's just weird. It's just, like, it's, I don't know how, like, only South Dakota can do this to a place. They, uh, they just, it's just special. The signs are unmistakable. They're just about as noteworthy as the free ice water and five-cent coffee. And they do more than tell you just how far you are away from the infamous wall drug. They, they tell you, about all the greatness, or at least perceived greatness, that one will encounter once they arrive at what seems to be the most important stop in all the Midwest. It is impossible in South Dakota to not know where you are in relation to the wall drug, whether you are getting closer to or further from. There's a seemingly infestation of wall drug signs. I've even heard some farmers are considering spraying for them. These signs, they serve a purpose. They tell you what to expect. They tell you if you've missed it. They tell you that you're getting closer. You're getting closer. You're getting closer. Here it is. That when you, like, you go to see Mount Rushmore, but you, you stay because you got trapped into Waldrug. But similar to this overabundance of signs, for wall drug in South Dakota. Similar, but I would add, much more meaningful are the signs we encounter all over the place through the Old Testament leading up to the Gospels announcing who Christ will be, how he will come, and what he will do. And it is this idea of signposts in the Old Testament where we turn to Melchizedek. I've been getting... Just so many phone calls and emails saying, Chuck, when can we just finally get to Melchizedek? You can just leave me alone now. We're here. Uh, so many emails. Um, but Melchizedek, he serves as what, what Bible nerds like to call a type of Christ. 
It's this typology that, that, that different figures within the Old Testament represent who Christ will be. They, they show a type. You can think of it like parts of a composite sketch of Christ. You know, we have David, who's this messianic king who comes to bring victory and has an eternal throne. We have Moses, who's, who's risen up seemingly out of nowhere as he's pulled out of the Nile. And then he delivers God's people from slavery, leads them to freedom. And here we have Melchizedek. And he, along with the other types and the prophecies of Christ, serve as these textual and historical signposts on the way to the Gospels. And while Melchizedek himself is not the first, and he's really far from the most lengthy, he is, he is a significant signpost nonetheless. As he tells us about the offices Christ holds, and, and he has kind of a mysterious brevity to him. And so before we get to Hebrews 7, I'm going to, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to start actually in Genesis 14, where we have this brief encounter with Mel. After his first return, after his return from the defeat uh, of, boy, I should have rehearsed this word, Kedor. Leomer, man, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out, uh, went out to meet him at the valley. Is him as Abram, or him, this is about Abram and Melchizedek coming together. Went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. By, the, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I that I would not take a thread or a, or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and, it, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So what's happened here is Abram has just gone. He's rescued Lot and others from, from Sodom after they, they got their tails whipped. And after doing so, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek come to the king's valley and meet with Abram. Melchizedek offers, presents bread and wine. He is treated, even though he's the king of Salem, he's recognized as a priest. He pronounces a blessing to Abram and to God. He receives a tithe. He fades away. Meanwhile, there's this juxtaposition where the king of Sodom comes and instead of offering a blessing to God, he comes and goes, well, why don't I just give you, you gave him a bunch, I want to give you a bunch. Abram says no, and the king of Sodom really fades away from this point. And this is what Hebrews has spent all this time building up to. This and, and a verse in Psalm 110 that we'll be spending some time with. And so why would Hebrews give more attention to Melchizedek than the entire Old Testament combined? It seems pretty strange. 
And it really doesn't take much to give more attention to Melchizedek than the entire Old Testament combined. Like, and you read through the Bible plan. If you're reading through the Bible for the first time, you get to Genesis 14, you're like, oh, that's interesting. By the time you get to Hebrews, you've completely forgotten about Melchizedek. Unless you're just a much better reader than me, which could be. And so why would he give this much time to Melchizedek? Well, one is there were contemporary theories going on at the time about who Melchizedek was, the Qumran community who we know for the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had this theory in their texts, in their extra-biblical texts, their, their, their notes that, that they made, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate form of Christ. That, that Melchizedek wasn't this king of Salem, but it was Jesus had come down, they think he's the king of Salem, he comes, he offers his blessing, he disappears back to heaven. Well, Hebrews says that's not it. Before we go any further, let's read Hebrews Seven. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 right now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the first by translation of his name, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. So here Hebrews makes this claim against that false theory that he's, he's just a resemblance of the Son of God. He was not the Son of God. He picks up on what the psalmist does, that in, this, in Psalm 110, this messianic psalm describing the reign of Christ as king, right in the middle of it, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And finally, the author of Hebrews is showing us exactly what he says here, and that is the Hebrew significance that Melchizedek had, that his name dripped with meaning. And his office dripped with meaning. That he is the king of righteousness. Jesus, as represented by Melchizedek, that Jesus is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and the priest forever. Melchizedek shows that Jesus brings together these two essential offices of priest and king. That he is the only priest who is king and the king who is priest. And others have tried to mix these offices and it never goes well. No one was able to do it, but Jesus brings them together. And that's because Jesus is beyond a normal high priest. And he's greater than a regular king. He is the one who rules as king and serves as priest. We see this, first of all, with king of righteousness. And, and I'm picking out these for for our, the sake of, of understanding this passage and understanding Christ through the lens of Melchizedek, we're looking at him as king of righteousness, king of peace, and the, and the forever priest. And so here in king of righteousness, as we look at these kingly attributes what, that, that are brought out in, in Melchizedek as a type, what I want us to see is what that means for his rule as king, what it means for the provision he gives us, and what it means for us to submit to his reign as king. So that's, that's what we're going to do with both of these first two, king of peace and king of righteousness. His rule, his provision, and then what it means for us to submit. 
And so what I want to do for this is, and I invite you to turn with me because we're going to be spending a good deal or, or a, a, a chunk of our time with Psalm 110 in understanding Christ as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Christ, in, a priest in the order of, of one who is king and priest. And so let's read Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are forever you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In verse 1, we have the, verses 1 and 3, we have this picture of, of the righteous rule. One, there's this, there's this righteousness, and this is really to the king, of, and it's Jesus' posture and, and, and place of honor that he's sitting. The Lord says to my Lord, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That he is at the right hand, he is seated with supreme royalty. You see, when, when a king enters the room, you don't stay sitting in your chair, you either get up or you bow down, right? You either stand up or you bow down to show that honor. And Jesus, at the right hand of God, is not standing, he is not bowing down, he is seated next to him where he belongs with his enemies as a footstool. It's interesting here, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And there's this idea of it's something I'm going to do and it's already there. And then we have this described rule of Christ, not just from sitting on the throne, but what it's like for us as his subjects. And this is the rule of Christ in verse 3. Your people, your subjects of your kingdom, offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. That his kingdom is unhindered and joyful and it's not a compulsory, I have to bring the king my offering, I have to bring the king the income from my land as, as one of his subjects, but it is a, I am freely offering myself for the king's service. I am freely giving myself. And it's this idea for us, as we are under Christ's rule, that we would freely offer, in the words of Paul, offer our bodies as living sacrifices as a spiritual act of worship. And then I want to get to the holy garments. That we are clothed by God in His righteousness. That, that the kingdom is reflecting the King. And how does that happen? It happens through His provision. 
for me, it can be really hard for me when I, you know, there's this verse in Psalm 18, that to the righteous, the Lord has been righteous. And that verse at different times in my life has just given me trouble because I don't always feel that righteous. Sometimes I feel pretty, pretty just outright crummy. But Jesus on the cross, Jesus who knew no sin on the cross was made to be sin for me so that I could receive in place of my sin the righteousness of God. See, it doesn't matter how I view myself. It matters how God views me. And when I put my faith in Christ, when I go to the cross, when I say, Jesus, you're my Lord, forgive my sins, God removes my sin and he exchanges that with a new outer fitting that changes my heart. And it's the righteousness of himself that he gives me through Christ. He gives us the holy garments. He transforms us. He works within us. He does this work. He changes our lives. He changes our desires. And this happens over time. And those of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time, you have such wisdom and experience for those of us who have not been walking with Christ for a long time. Because when you, when you come to a mature believer, it's not that they've just learned the rigor of like, well, I just don't sin anymore. I've mastered it. I'm good. There's, that person isn't in here. If you are, this probably isn't the church for you. But what you will find when you talk to mature believers is you'll find people who say, man, I still struggle with sin, but my desires have changed. Like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, there were sins I was really struggling with, and God is so gracious, and he has moved my desires away from that and moved my desires increasingly away from the sin and increasingly towards him. Now, I'm not without sin. Those things aren't completely absent from my struggle with sin, but my desire for God is increasingly outweighing my desire for the sin. Isn't that so good that God would do that for us? That, that there can be days that we can wake up just hungry for His Word, and hungry to pray, and hungry to worship, and hungry to love the people around us, instead of seeking out whatever will fill our flesh that day. And he does that. And he does that as we submit to his reign. Psalm 23 ends with this, this idea of, of David being a sheep led by a shepherd, and it says where he leads me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That as we follow the Lord, he will lead us increasingly towards righteousness so that we can increasingly be these people offering ourselves freely, clothed in holy garments. One day realizing it in full in glory. And this psalm, Psalm 110, just has images of, of, of what we consider end times. Image, images of the final day of power, the reign of Christ that is eternal and final with, with all enemies made a footstool, all enemies laid waste. And it's a graphic image. It is, a, it is an eschatological image. But all along the way, between here and there, our shepherd is leading us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
I don't know the last time you went hiking, uh, but I'm guessing you did not see a fork in the road and signs on each and one saying carnal, evil, wicked sin and the other saying righteousness. I've not come across that fork in the road while hiking. But as I follow the Lord, I am naturally led towards that which is righteous. And here's how I'm led there. It's really simple. When I encounter sin in my own life, I turn, repent, and grow. And that's all it is. It's a really simple recipe. When I encounter my pride, when I encounter my arrogance, when I encounter whatever it is in my flesh that is not eternal, whatever it is in my flesh that is not from God, I turn from that Sometimes quickly, sometimes it, it requires a brother or sister in Christ to have a little mini intervention with me. I repent of that sin, I seek to grow, and then it's just repeat. And that's the Christian life. There's sin, i got to turn, I need to repent, trust God that He cleanses me of my unrighteousness, and I grow, trusting Him more, and the next time it happens, I turn, I repent. And what I've found in my life is the more often that I return, that I turn to God and repent of my sin, the easier it gets to do that. Because my pride just gets shaved off. My arrogance gets shaved off. My hard-heartedness gets shaved off. And I'm able to submit to the reign of a righteous king. And then we have that he is king of peace, king of Salem, king of peace. Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. How does a king rule in the midst of his enemies? I would say he does so because his enemies are not a threat to his kingship. Here we have this graphic picture of the enemies of the king being completely done away with. Images of war. And it's images that call to mind passages in Revelation where the wrath of God is poured out and those who would follow the beast are, are destroyed and the beast himself is eventually destroyed. That he gets rid of his enemies. And I would say he gets rid of his enemies. And this is going to go into where we're, we're about to tread in, in two ways. One is, is the images we see here of God decimating and the other is God converts his enemies. Praise God. Because we're a whole bunch of converted enemies of God. That we were hostile towards God in our flesh. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, following the prince of the power of the air. And God would have the audacity to actually make us his children. And so his rule is one of peace. He has the scepter, he is in the midst of his enemies, he is not threatened. There's no one who can overthrow him. And so we can be secure in that. 
And so let's look at his provision. Jesus in the upper room told his disciples, now my peace I give you, not as the world gives you peace, but I'm giving you peace. Our world defines peace as as really as a temporary escape. I want to leave my troubles away, and I just want to go, and and really our picture of peace, the world's picture of peace, is an all-inclusive beach resort. Am I right? I'm going to set up my out-of-office reply. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to sit at a cabana, and I'm going to have liquid in a coconut with an umbrella and the sound of the waves, and it's great, and that's peace. That may have elements of peace, but putting your problems on hold to find an escape is not peace. It's procrastination. Real peace is in the midst of all the devastation, in the midst of all the trouble that's going on, I can be calm because my king with his scepter is on the throne and no one's taking him off. It is a greater peace. It is a peace that baffles the mind. Or as Philippians would say, it transcends understanding. It's peace that's found in a waiting room in a hospital while your loved one is in surgery on parts of the body that should never be seen by open air. It's peace that when it feels like all your relationships are falling apart, you can stand secure because you're a child of God. But it's not just peace in times of trouble, but ultimate peace, and that is peace with God. He is the king that gives us peace with the one from whom we were were acting treasonously, changing us from enemies to children, and so we submit to his reign. We submit to his reign as the king of peace by trusting his sovereignty as as George pointed out earlier in the service, that all the wars cease. Be still and know that I am God. Can you imagine what's going on for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine right now? And what that verse must mean for them. That they could, in the midst of that war, be still and know Our God is God. And that one day He will make all wars cease. And that He is holding them. It is an acknowledgement that what is happening is under His control. That God will get the final word. That I don't need to know about tomorrow. I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I can seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Finding peace with God comes from, from moving from the saying of I'm opposed to him to saying I am under him forever, he is my Lord. That when we try to be our own Lord, when we try to live in our personal truth, as opposed to realizing that we exist inside God's ultimate one truth, that we are really attempting a coup against the creator. We are attempting a coup against the one in whose image and likeness we have been made. However, when we stop our personal spiritual insurrection against the throne of heaven and recognize the lordship of Christ, we are not admitting defeat. Instead, we are acknowledging who he is and we are finding freedom by refusing to live in a chronic rebellion to the king. And we are admitting what's been true all along, that Jesus, it is you on the throne. 
And so I want to walk by your ways. I want to do what you say is right for me. I want to define my sexuality according to your word. I want to handle conflict according to your word. I want to handle my finances, Lord, according to your word. I want to love my neighbors. I want to treat the poor. I want to treat the oppressed according to your word, God, and not according to what I think is right. Because if the whole world did what I thought was right, we'd be worse off than now. So, Lord, I just want to follow you. There's a prayer as you think of what it means to submit to the rule of our king, who is king of righteousness and king of peace. And that prayer is found at the end of Psalm 139. When I am working with people through, through crisis, it's just, that just hits the heart deeper. Not like a house burning down, but like personal sin issue crisis. I, I often bring this out and, and challenge them to pray this. Uh, at the end of Psalm 139, as he's praised God for God's great knowledge of him, God's great creative power at work in bringing him to being. He says, oh God, that you would, verse 19, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with my complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Pretty strong words. Now listen to what he says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. You know what he's praying here? Saying, God, I hate those who sin against you. I hate those who hate you. God, look at every corner of my heart. And if there's anything in me that stands opposed to you, if there's anything in me that is, that is similar to those I've just described, expose that to me so I can turn and repent. Lead me in your way. If there's anything in me that's not from heaven, show that to me. God, would you do that work in us? Would you show us these things that are against your reign as king? Would we submit to his reign as king of peace and righteousness and take our sin seriously? Because he's not just this... this king he's also a priest he is the forever priest now for those of you who know and love your bibles who who just you just live for a sword drill or a bible quiz like your your idea of a good time is you pull out the the bible trivial pursuit and just rock your friends uh if that's you then then verse three is for you out of hebrews seven he melchizedek Without father or mother or genealogy. This guy's in Genesis. Genesis is the book of genealogies. Especially, like, even Cain has a genealogy in Genesis. People without genealogies in Genesis are, are about as meaningless as it gets in the Bible, except for Melchizedek. And what we see here is when Moses, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is writing Genesis, the Holy Spirit 
you can imagine that. I don't think it was a conversation, but you can imagine it like a conversation. Holy Spirit goes, all right, we're going to write about Melchizedek. And Moses goes, okay. How many generations are we going back? Uh, five? Could we only do three maybe? Let's just talk about great-grandpa, grandpa, dad. Can we do that? So Melchizedek, son of, no. Moses, he's not the son of anyone. No, he's got to have a dad. No, he, he doesn't. Okay, he has a dad. We're not talking about him because the point is we're going to portray him without any parents. Why? Don't worry about it. Because there's someone coming whose reign is eternal, without beginning, without end. And Melchizedek is going to be this weird guy that points us to him. So Melchizedek, in the book of Genesis, no father, no mom, no genealogy, nothing, because he's resembling the Son of God, who is the Alpha and the Omega, one who has no beginning, no end, one who is eternal in both directions. Resembling the Son of God, who is this ultimate high priest. And Melchizedek, as, we, as you go through verses 4 to 10, you realize Melchizedek is seen as this ultimate high priest because Abraham gave a tithe. And so that, that, that Levi, the priestly tribe, in the loins of Abraham, even was considered as giving a tithe. That even the priests are tithing to Melchizedek, which is really saying even the priests have to tithe to their great high priest, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is not the priest that was. He is not the priest that will be. He is the ultimate priest that is. The present reign of our king and priest. And Melchizedek hears this wonderful sign on the road on the Old Testament. And it's not a very big sign. It's not very flashy. You might miss it if you're going too fast. But he's very important. That we have a righteous king who's the king of priests, who is, who's, who's the king of peace, who is the priest appointed by God to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He is the priest who reigns and the king who gives himself. And so as we look at this, this focus we're having building up to Easter of it is finished, what we need to realize here with Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, this king priest, is he's the only one who could finish it. No one else was able to finish what Jesus finished. No one else was able to offer himself and reign. Nobody else brings righteousness and peace and salvation all together. When we are under the reign of the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, we need no other. We don't have any need for any other ruler. He's all we need. What else could you hope for? What else could you be looking for that Christ doesn't offer? And when we really make him our King, then when, like our brothers and sisters in Christ, the bombs are falling, or like other brothers and sisters in Christ, we're being carted away to prison, separated from our families, or we are sending our loved ones to go to places of the world that we've never heard about because the gospel isn't there yet. We can offer ourselves freely with the holy garments that he's given us 
because he is such a great king. There's, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. Christ is the one on the throne. We don't need to freak out about some wave that's happening in our culture or in our world. We can remain steadfast as servants of the King who've been saved by the King who's the priest. And so I just want to ask you, with such a great King-Priest, why would you not submit yourself? Why would you not why would you not say, I want to be under his reign? I want a king who will give to me just as freely as the text says that I'm giving to him. I want a king who gives me a peace that transcends understanding. I want a king that doesn't sit on a throne and say, hey, why don't you go do my bidding? But he offers himself. He has offered himself for my salvation. So is there an area of your life that you're thinking, you know what, I think I can run this better than a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And would you, as, we, as the praise team comes and as we close in worship, would you consider just laying that down and really submitting yourself to the authority of the king and submitting yourself to his eternal lordship? knowing that he's the king to offer himself for you. Let's pray. Father, we can just be so thick-headed sometimes, thinking we have a better plan for ourselves than you, thinking we have it more together than you could ever give us. And Jesus, you are such a great, complete king and priest, and there will never come a day where you're not serving us. And so, Lord, would you do the work in our hearts to humble us, to draw us to you, that we would turn and repent and submit and turn and repent and grow and walk with the greatest king and priest that anyone could imagine or hope for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.